Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Wow. Got a little Greg Brady right from say, the jump. Your voice changing finally. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. My name is Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Welcome to the show. Sorry, that was very disconcerting. Wait a minute, where do you think my voice is gonna go next? Oh, I'm excited to you see what it's happens. Dig it down here. Mm. I think it's gonna be more one of these guys, one of these numbers. <laughs> Welcome to podcast. That's why I like best when we podcast early in the morning when we both have nice low voices. Nice low voices. Nice low voices. By the end of the day, there's just nothing left. Yeah, nothing left in the tank. Sid, uh, this is one of my favorite episodes. It requires very little preamble. We've done them before. We're doing it again. And I feel like this is the one where we can actually help people. You know what I mean? Because they bring to us their weird wild wild and wonderful medical questions and we we actually help together i, I don't know if i help people I, i've mm. thought about this a lot i think that uh we try to on this show for an, for myriad reasons most of them that i want people to actually get help that they need that's appropriate to them and personalized and not just generic answers from podcast type health help health help that made sense so i try never to answer actual medical like i need a doctor to help me with a problem questions. Yeah. You know what I mean? I got you. Because you should actually go see somebody who can evaluate you and do all the proper stuff, not just read your question on a podcast. So these are more like curiosity, I think. Just uh, I also yeah. want to know. curios. Yeah. I, uh, so we try to stay on that level. If I actually do end up helping someone, that's a, that's a little icing on that podcast cake. Uh, and let's cut into our first slice of podcast cake. Mm. Right now. What would a podcast cake taste like? What flavor would it be? What flavor would it be? I don't know. That's a very big question. Mm. Take it from me. I wrote the book about podcasting. There's not just one cake. There's lots of different cakes. That's true. Some are deep and rich and Mm. some are light and fluffy. And all of them are outclassed by pie at every turn. I think we can agree agree to that. No matter what kind of cake the podcast cake is, the pie will always do better. I don't agree at all. Uh, we cannot rehash the cake versus pie argument on this show. Okay. Cheesecake is cake. First question. You can't just do that. <laughs> First question. Immediately after getting a vaccine, before the doctor puts the Band-Aid on, could you squeeze your deltoid and squirt the vaccine back out the hole? <laughs> <laughs> I love this question. I'm pretty sure it's no, right? This is from Al. Hi, thanks, Al. Uh, 
no, you can't. You can't. I that do like this question. It's a lowercase okay. L, so it so, could also be AI. So this could also be <laughs> some sort of learning routine that's trying to calculate how the human no, mind so works. If you've ever uh, given or received, like, especially a larger volume injection, you may have seen a little droplet, like, right outside the puncture mm-hmm. um, at the end. So I could see where the beginning of this concept would come from. Mm-hmm. But you have to remember, and I think we I may have used this analogy on the show before, you're, what you're injecting into is a lot more like a sponge yes, in terms of the tissue. Yeah, it's not like a water balloon. So It's tissue. That's a good metaphor. Yes. And so it, tissue is a good metaphor because if you think about something like a Kleenex or a paper towel or something, you couldn't just um, like squeeze – like b- lay it flat on a counter and push your hands on it and the expect all the water has, to yeah, come the out. Has happened. Yes. Yeah. So like if you immediately squeezed, could you like get a drop out? Like the last drop that just went in that has not yet been absorbed? Possibly. But the whole vaccine would not come back out or or whatever your injection was. And I, I think this goes without saying, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Because whatever you just got injected in you, you probably I mean, I hope you wanted it there. good stuff. So, and vaccines are great. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I wouldn't try it, but even if you did, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't lose that vaccine power. Get vaccinated, everyone. Not just you, Al. Everybody. Thank you. Here's another question. In MASH, they have a few episodes which center around a hemorrhagic fever. Oh, C-E-N-T-R-E. I see we've got an intercontinental listener here. Somebody's a little fancier. Center around a hemorrhagic fever, which they treat slash manage by restricting fluids. Is that an actual thing for certain hemorrhagic fevers? Or was that a depiction of a 1950s slash 60s slash 70s medicine? I believe the episode Soldier of the Month in season four when it was first brought up. And that's from Freya. Thank you, Freya. Uh, so, yes, I'm I'm really glad that you asked this question because I love MASH. I think I've made that clear on the yep. show. Love MASH. Uh, love the opportunity to dive back into an episode of MASH to try to figure this out. And I, I think that this topic in general deserves a whole episode unto itself at some point. Okay. I did want to briefly answer the question, though, without spoiling too much of what, I, of like MASH. I said, of MASH. <laughs> I won't spoil MASH for you, for all those who still haven't gotten around to, to watching MASH. <laughs> um, the hemorrhagic fever that they're talking about is is a one of the Hanta viruses, Hanta viridae, which is like a family of different viruses that the Hanta virus we know in the U.S. usually causes causes lung problems. There are also these um, hemorrhagic fever with renal syndrome, which is actually the way they're uh, abbreviated HFRS, meaning you got one of those viruses and they cause kidney problems. It was a huge problem uh, during the Korean War. There were it, it's estimated it, the exact numbers aren't known because at the time you didn't always know what you were dealing with, right? Much like in the episode of Mash, I don't think they specifically say what it is. They talk about this in other episodes too. Uh, but about three thousand soldiers got this syndrome. Um, estimates are that maybe three hundred people died of it. So Thanks. big deal. Yeah. Um, and uh, it would, like I said, it would cause fevers, headache, nausea, but also kidney failure was the hallmark of it. And when your kidneys aren't working, they're, one, they're not filtering stuff out right, so you can get really sick from all the stuff that's building up, the toxic stuff that's building up in your body. But the other thing is you get fluid overloaded. 
So you get a ton of like swelling. Your body can get swollen, your legs, um, but also your lungs can fill with fluid, Mm -hmm. which is bad for breathing and can cause you to go into respiratory failure, which, you know, you stop breathing and that's not really, that's not compatible with life long term, to put it mildly, especially if we're talking about someone who's out in the field. Yeah. So... Uh, fluid management was the main thing that they had to do for these patients uh, during the war is restrict how much fluids they're bringing in in order to make sure they didn't get too fluid overloaded but still give them enough fluid to keep so that they didn't have vascular collapse. So anyway, yes, this would have been one of the main treatments at the time. We would probably manage this differently nowadays and certainly – they were managing this differently if they were actually like in a hospital somewhere where they could get the full range of critical care um, that was offered. But out in the field, this was, uh, I mean, it must have been a huge task uh, for the doctors and nurses who were out, you know, on the front lines having to manage these patients because mm-hmm. um, they were critically ill patients. Uh, but yes, fluid restriction would have definitely been part of it. So it's really interesting. Does make sense. Slightly different than what we do today. Similar, but we would, we'd be, you know, We'd use numbers and stuff. <laughs> We'd use labs. Yeast infections. Yes. Why? It's kind of a deep one. Why? Why? Also, are there stages of yeast infections? Sometimes I experience discomfort in my bathing suit region, but when I use Vagisil, it helps right away. Is that a different situation, or is that an early stage of yeast infection? Also, can anybody get a yeast infection? Thanks. That's from Ariel. I don't know why uh, I keep forgetting to read people's I names. I don't know either. Um, so, yeah, okay. First of all, why? I think it's inter- – I don't know if we've ever talked about this before on the show. You know, I don't know. Maybe. I may have mentioned it. Um, so, yeast uh, grows when other – when it's out-competing other things that grow. We are supposed to have – those of us who have vaginas, we are supposed to have a natural flora there. There is bacteria that is supposed to be there, and it's fine. It's good. It's healthy. There's no problem with it. Um, If something gets thrown off where yeast can grow better than that good natural bacteria, Mm -hmm. uh, then you can get a yeast infection. So the yeast is out competing for for growth in space, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Overpopulates. There aren't like defined stages in the sense that like I would look at a yeast infection and, and grade it like in my documentation like this, this is, is a grade is a one or a stage two. We three get or, in here. i mean certainly you can have more severe infections or like if if you just begin the yeast growth you know to notice some symptoms maybe you catch it before more more severe symptoms happen i wouldn't say it's a protocol or anything they're all treated fairly similarly in terms of there are pills that you can take that are prescription and then there are also a variety of over-the-counter creams and and things that you can both apply to the outside and then um some of the creams, and anybody who's ever had a yeast infection might know this, come with these little sort of uh, injector things where you fill the tube with cream and then squirt it inside the vaginal cavity. Anyway, the point is um, that anybody can get a yeast infection. You can get yeast infections uh, anywhere that's sort of like warm and damp and not necessarily exposed to the air. So not just in like a vaginal area, you can get them in skin folds. They can happen under breasts or anywhere where there is, where there is skin touching skin and a dark moist area underneath. You know, Sid, it figures. I I try to get yeast to bloom from my conscious, from my sweetbreads and they die. But then 
somebody just have an armpit and just get it. You just have to have an armpit. Just get some uh, get some it's, without any work at all. It's worth noting too. Like it's the same thing if you've seen thrush and babies in the mouth. Mm-hmm. You can get yeast infections in the mouth or in the throat. Yeast yeast can grow a lot of places. Um if it's something that Vagisil clears up, if you have some sort of discomfort, that could just be some irritation or some dryness, those kinds of things, especially like dryness of the the outer tissues of the labia. It it could just be that. Probably not yeast in that case. Um, but I think there's this uh, inclination that when whenever vaginas are itchy, it's got to be yeast, and that's I think it's a common misconception. It's got to be yeast. Remember. <laughs> but if you're concerned, talk to your doctor. Hey, Dr. McElroy and Justin, my question is more about how the science of different SSRIs work. For example, why are my ADHD medicines an appetite suppressant and my OCD medicines an appetite increasing medicine? That's nice. You take them both. (laughs) I thought the drugs fixed my brain. Why do they mess with my gut so much? Thank you in advance. That's from Clay in Champagne. Uh, I I thought it was a good question to ask just because without knowing the specifics of your medications, and I'm not asking for that. Um, It's hard to know exactly the mechanism of action and why they're doing what they're doing. But generally speaking, uh, what's interesting is that you got to remember these medicines, aren't they're not working on your gut directly. They are working on your brain, right? Mm -hmm. But it it reminds us how much our brain influences our gut. So especially when it comes to appetite, so much of our idea of when we feel hunger, when we feel fullness, you know, those things, they're coming from your brain. Those are signals, chemical signals, hormonal signals that are sent from the brain. And certainly there are receptors on the gut. So you have responses in the gut. But I think that that, that's always helpful when it comes to um, diagnoses like irritable bowel syndrome. And people will say like, it has to do with, you know, uh, chemicals from your brain which can be misconstrued as, so it's all in your head. Mm-hmm. Or like, I've heard people just say like, I have a quote unquote nervous tummy. But no, it's, it's just that it's all connected. Our brains and our bodies are all connected, which yeah. is why when you have a diagnosis that's primarily a psychiatric or a, a, a mental health diagnosis, it affects every bit of your body. It affects your gut, it affects your stomach, it affects your appetite and your bowels and your muscles and your joints and everything. Everything feels you know, related to this this brain, primarily brain process. So so that's why, because the medicines act on your brain and that's our brain regulates everything. It's the control center. Uh, I work in public health and I've been working on COVID response like most of my colleagues since March of 2020. Thank you. About six months after this, the response started, my office had a psychologist give us a presentation to explain how our brains are handling the situation. She explained that memory problems are super common. My question is, how long are we going to have these memory issues? We're calling it response brain or COVID brain. And honestly, I feel like it's getting worse, not better for all of us. At what point should we be concerned? That's from Ariel. Go ahead, Justin. Did you have a th- you, you look like you had a thought. No, well, no, my hand itched, so I was scratching it. As long as you've thrown the proverbial spotlight on me, I will say that I know that um, stress hormones like cortisol can have uh, an impact on memory function. Mm-hmm. I think, well, what you're hitting on is exactly, and we've we've mentioned this briefly on the show before, but I think it's always a good thing to reiterate because it, it's been so distressing for many people in the past year. Certainly people who 
are working in like directly in the oh, healthcare yeah. field or the public health field, you know, in response to COVID, but for for everyone else as well. Who I should mention, by the way, in, if you are in a healthcare field, or maybe even you're somebody who like took it to a lesser extent took took COVID extremely seriously for a very long time. Uh, b- being in those fields and then seeing the world like act like everything is fine now is going to be continuing. It's just like a delicious act two of trauma Mm -hmm. because that is like twilight zone level wild to see how some people are sort of like acting in response to COVID right now. Well, I think the phrase gaslighting gets thrown around a lot. um, But in this case, it perfectly fits. A lot of us feel that way. Like did, 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 was no one like, weren't we, didn't we all just live through the same thing right. this past year? We were what, all, what is happening, right? Like, this all just happened, right? Um, so we're just letting kids get, so we're just not worrying about We're kids just letting all. kids get COVID. Just letting That's kids just get the COVID. thing. No mask for kids. Okay, good. We're done? Okay. All right, got it. Um, so I, I think that, I think you're right. That would be why you are, why these problems are persisting. And I think that um, I have, I have still heard people say, like, I think maybe this uh, was sort of a question. I think maybe this, pandemic has had some sort of effect on our healthcare workers and our and it's like you don't know that how how are we not all uh rigorously addressing this issue that you have been probably undergoing trauma i would assume a lot of us have um when you are in those sort of stress inducing environments stress hormones like cortisol uh make it difficult for you to you're not forming the memories is the problem it's not so much that you're forgetting as in the moment, you aren't your brain is not being able to do the things that allow you to retrieve that memory later. Does that make sense? Um, and and that can happen in states of extreme anxiety or depression as well. You you just the focus and attention that's necessary for it to be stored and remembered later is not happening because you're also trying to process the constant threat of this virus and worrying about your loved ones. And then if you're in public health, worrying about our response as a species, which has been less than stellar, I would say. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it should be getting worse for everyone, but it could still certainly be getting worse and it needs to be addressed, um, both on like company-wide levels, like businesses and healthcare facilities and all the different places where this work has been taking place should be bringing in people to like trauma counselors to work with people constantly. We still need that support all the time. Um, the fact that it's not happening in every healthcare facility across the nation, across the globe right now is, I mean, ridiculous. But you may also personally need somebody to talk to about this because this has been an incredibly traumatizing year for many people to different for different degrees of severity. And the idea that we should all just bounce back because like, it's hot girl summer, um, <laughs> which don't get me wrong. I want to. I want to be there. Yeah. I want. I want to be out like f- feeling great and, and living the roaring twenties. Like I want that. And it's we're just, obviously not living how we were living in April of twenty twenty. I mean, like no, we have we have begun not. to to venture out a little bit and make like calculated risks with selected people, but uh, we also have two young children and. The fact that the world seems to have forgotten that it matters if a kid gets sick or it matters if even a few children, you know, succumb to COVID, that that matters. It, it's been, it's, it's wild. It's hard. It's scary. And it's, um, 
it, it can make you feel very jaded, too. So Okay, we have many more questions to come, but first we're going to go to the billing department. Let's go. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box? Pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes smoothies they got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious and the meals you just eat and eat there's no prepping cooking or cleanup get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week you're going to get exactly what you want no surprises here uh and the meals i can say are delicious so what do you got to lose head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones 50 and use code Sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code Sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash Sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier then you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going to. Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool. Think of it as the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the Easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McRoy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McRoy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello, I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And we host Still Buffering, a cross-generational guide to the culture that made us. Every week, we share media that made us who we are. Things like Archie Comics, Sailor Moon, and lots of Taylor Swift. And now that Riley's an adult, it comes with 100% more butts. And now I am totally comfortable with it. So check out new episodes of Still Buffering every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Butts, butts, butts. Join in, Riley. Butts, 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 butts,
Hi, guys. So I recently learned about precordial catch syndrome, a.k.a. Texador's twinge. That is a heck of a name. And it's something I've been apparently dealing with for years now. It's characterized by a sudden stabbing pain in my left side of my chest, worsened by inhaling, and usually lasts only a few minutes before mysteriously subsiding. My question is, do you have any, there's more there, but uh, my question is, do you have any idea what causes it? I can't find much info other than it's commonly seen in adolescents, I'm 27, and people with high stress, I'm thankfully not. Uh, so it's really interesting. Um, I had never heard the term Texador's twinge. I've that heard precordial catch like syndrome. some Gary Gygax, <laughs> like fifth edition D&D nonsense. Like Texador's <laughs> twinge is a wild name. It is, it is one of the names that it goes by. Uh, I thought that was very interesting because I had never um, I had never heard that. Um, precordial catch syndrome, you described it perfectly. That is exactly the sensation people have. Um, and a hallmark is that, as this uh, listener noted, you have a bunch of tests to work it up and everything seems okay. Your heart and lungs are fine. Um, because obviously you don't want to just assume that it's nothing. You, you know, you want to be evaluated. Usually these episodes are particular are very short. Um, this listener mentioned that some could be up to 15 minutes, which is on the longer end. Um, but uh, at one point, someone suggested that uh, they lift their arms and take a huge deep breath. And while it hurt to do it, it made the pain go away, which this is all a very classic description of precordial catch syndrome. Why does it happen? It's the best guess is that it's probably so in between your ribs, you have there's space, right? And there is a neurovascular bundle, meaning nerves and blood vessels that run in those spaces. So our best guess is that it's either like a pinched, what we would call intercostal between the ribs nerve or a muscle spasm occurring because there's also a muscle there in between all those ribs. Um, and it, that is our best guess. Now, it's hard to say exactly what it is because there's no real test. You know what I mean? Nobody. It, it happens so quickly. It's benign. You rule out the scary stuff. This is what it is. Mm -hmm. There's no test I can do to prove it. But that is what that is the thought process behind what it is. It was I just thought it was interesting. It was originally named uh, Houchard's syndrome for Henri Houchard, who was actually the first doctor who described it back in 1893. But then later, these other two doctors, Albert Miller and Teodoro Antonio Texador, did a lot more work on it. And then I guess got to rename it Texador's Twinge. Texador's Twinge. Um, I love it. I'm going to remember that forever. It, it is more common in adolescence. Uh, it can happen at rest. It can happen with movement. It can happen because you're hunched over. They thought maybe posture related. I don't know. We, there's still a lot we don't know. If you're having chest pain, you should always get checked out. But this is something, precordial catch syndrome or Texador's Twinge, that can just happen and be no big deal. And, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen again. Stretching and moving or laying down has been known to, to fix it. Hi there. I'm curious about the topic of breast milk versus formula. I've heard that once an infant goes on formula, they cannot switch back to breast milk. I was wondering if this is true, and if so, why? Thank you so much. Love the show, Luca. Um, I thought this was important just to mention that uh, there is no reason you can't do both. You can do breast milk. You can do formula. You can do one, then the other. You can mix them together in the same day. This is all fine. Um, so I, I think that where this misconception might come from is that there is always the fear that because there is going to be a taste difference, that your infant might have a preference for one over the other, and it would make it hard to go back and forth, right? right. So if I introduce formula, what if my baby likes that better, and then I can't breastfeed anymore? Um, in practice, that's not usually an issue. 
uh, most infants do fine moving back and forth between the two um, unless there are special nutritional needs or, you know, they have to get a certain kind of formula or, or intolerances. But um, both work great and fed babies are healthy babies. So it's fine. Uh, does the clock on sunscreen start when you go into the sun or when you apply it? Like, can I put it on, sit in a totally dark room for two hours and then go out there and be okay? That's from Devin. I thought this was such a great question because I honestly didn't know. Okay. When I when I got this question, I thought, well, I've never thought about it. So from what I can tell, nobody is ever really – I don't think anybody's doing this. Like I don't think anybody's tried that. Like yeah. I, I think the, what, the way that the studies are done is we put on sunscreen and then go out in the sun and then measure the sun protectant factor – as time goes on. I because, do I do know that water impacts it. So if you're swimming, yes. it can be it's greatly reduced the the speed at which you need to reapply. But so does just like sweating and sure. then the general like shedding of skin cells that we're constantly doing all the time. Slough, the sloughing. Uh, yes. So I I don't I mean there is I guess there's room for a study here where you have people sit in a room for 2 hours and then go out in the sun. Um I would not do that at home because uh, you're naturally – it is going to wear off naturally just from being on your skin. And like I said, the sweating and the sloughing and the insensible fluid loss that we all do all the time, all those things, mm-hmm. you're going to lose effectiveness. And it should be noted that that SPF 30 that you put on when you first went out in the sun, two hours later is not still SPF 30. The SPF has been dropping, which is why you have to reapply every couple hours. Yes. Um, that's why that is so essential. So – I would I would say for safety's sake, as soon as you put it on, that is when your clock starts ticking. Even if it takes you another half hour to get the kids out the door, <laughs> which is my case. Um, I don't know if you've answered this before, but sometimes when I get really anxious or I'm in a high stress environment, my mouth feels and tastes weird. It's almost like I've gone dehydrated. Is there a medical reason behind it? Even better, is there a way to make it go away besides just waiting for the anxiety or stress-inducing event to pass? That's from yours in medical interest, Emily. Uh, so this is actually a really common thing that can happen with anxiety. I don't know if you've ever experienced it's, it. It's cotton mouth. Have but you have you had it, this sensation? You, uh, yes, for sure. And many people may have. I'm going to write just... it. I'm going to go ahead and give it a thumbs down for <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> Disconcerting? Uh, oh, yes. There, there are a couple reasons. The, the most obvious that dry mouth or cotton mouth happens. I mean, because that's what, that's probably at the root of this is your mouth is dry. Mm. It is, that's what the weird taste or sensation in your mouth, it's dry. Um, The most obvious is that when you're anxious, you aren't as, uh, you are more likely to breathe less efficiently Mm. through your mouth. And you may not process that you're doing that at the time because you're anxious, but you're probably breathing through your mouth and drying out your mouth. Um, Folks let go that mouth breathing. No need for it. Don't do not do it. Exercise, <laughs> daily life, give it up. Mouth breathing is no good. I read a whole book about it. You don't want to mouth breathe anymore. My nose is too small. Well, Sydney, it's time to get that special. <laughs> it's my nose holes, the, the nostrils. augmentation. They're too... Time to get a cyber nose. They're stenotic. Also, uh, higher levels of cortisol and norepinephrine, which are things that are released when you're stressed out or in a high anxiety state, can cause a taste change in your mouth. If you've mm. ever had a metallic taste or a bitter taste yep. in your mouth, yep. um, that is associated with that. Uh, it also changes how... I thought this was interesting. There have been studies done to say when you're anxious... You do not taste as well 
like, well, hold on, let me rephrase that. (laughs) When you're anxious, you're not able to taste salty things as well or to taste sweet things. Like the sensation of salty and sweet is diminished Mm -hmm. when you are in a high anxiety state. So it also changes like your actual taste ability. Wow. So uh, this is a very common thing. I I would say there's not, I mean, certainly if your mouth is dry, drinking fluids can help with that. But in terms of the causative, you know, the anxiety itself, ways to cope with stress and manage your anxiety are the things you need to, to focus on. All right. You asked for weirdness and grossness. I'm working on a screenplay about a chef who starts to use human flesh as his dishes. Uh, so I'm curious, what examples are there? Medical, are there cannibalism in medical history? Was there ever someone who swore by the medicinal properties of human f- flesh? Thank you, and please don't report me to the authorities. Hey, listen, I can deal with this one, Sid. This is why I did this. <laughs> really? We never do this. We never plug the back catalog. I'm telling you, we should just yeah. start recycling episodes. Greatest no, hits. I just wanted to plug one of, one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. It's from episode 38. April 8th, 2014, medical cannibalism. That's right. There's a whole, listen to the, there's a whole, yes. Yes, there's a whole history there. That was the only reason I wanted to include that one. That's good. I'm, I'm telling you, it's the greatest hits. We got to start recycling these episodes, just run them as new. It's one of my favorites. No one's going to go back and listen to hundreds of, of episodes of a podcast. Uh, who would do that? Sometimes there's gunk in a hair follicle. Sometimes at the end, when I pluck a hair or in the follicle, almost like a blackhead, I can squeeze it out. I'm pretty sure it's not a blackhead. What's up with that? It's from Jackie. Um, so at the at the bottom of a hair follicle, there's also like a gland. Yeah. A little oil gland. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you that because there is an open space where oil is stored, one, you could there could be oil there. Two, anytime there is, you know, um a, an open space dirt or skin cells can accumulate, um, and that can look like a little plug of, it can be clear, yellow, brown, black, you know, a variety of different colors. Yeah. Um, but that's pretty common at the end of a hair follicle. That That is not unusual at all. It's nothing um, wrong, and it's not necessarily a blackhead, although you may have a blackhead there. Um, very common. Hi, why don't doctors make house calls anymore? I personally suffer from migraines and would love house calls to come back in style. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> Dr. McElroy, who just made a house call yesterday. I was going to say, well, that's uh, in part, some of us still do do house calls. Um, I just did yesterday. Uh, and I know some of my colleagues do house calls, too. Less in COVID, I would say. I saw fewer of those um, occurring. Prior to COVID, it was actually part of the curriculum. When I was a resident, you had to do a certain number of house calls so that you learned how to do that. Um, I... I would say, why don't doctors do it as much anymore? And I'm going to be very careful not to just use this as an opportunity to rail against the American medical system again, because we already did that show. A first. Um, A lot of it has to do with, one, the logistics. Uh, If you have a doctor who is, like, in an office-established practice and they're seeing lots of patients per day, like a busy family practice doctor would, you know, in theory, we're supposed to see a patient at least – Every 15 minutes or 30 if it's a new patient. Um, you can see how it would be really difficult to fit a home visit into that structure because that's how so much of it is structured these days. And if you do block off an afternoon to do a couple home visits because you could only do a few in that time period, then um, one, you can't see a lot of patients who need you and two, 
the people who like to make money off medicine don't make as much money. Um, home visits do bill a lot higher, I have noticed, um, which is one reason I, I actually had patients who preferred, even though I offered it, they didn't want that because they cost more. Um, home visits too? Huh? Home visits, you mean? They do. Now, there are that we do have uh, practices that have become structured around that. I know there's one in our area where it is purely for patients who, for whatever reason, either prefer or can't make it to office visits. Um, so you might look, there may be one of those in your area, but their their whole business model is now structured around this. And they have like so many like doctors and nurse practitioners and physicians assistants, and they can like deploy a fleet of people out to, to do this kind of work. And I don't know, but it, it I mean, money. Money is the shorthand. It's not that you're, and it's not even about like the physician themselves. I know a lot of my colleagues love to do home visits and wish they could do more. There's just, unless you're going to do it on evenings and weekends, there's no structure for that in the system we have, usually. Now, now before you get all excited, oh, Dr. McElroy's making house calls. She must be reckoning in the big bucks. Don't get too excited, listener. She She's volunteering. I know. I'm bummed out. Too. It was a free home visit. I wanted her to start scraping in. The, the the cash. I, as much as I can stop getting paid for my services, I'm trying. <laughs> While we still eat. <laughs> this is my silent protest. I'm raging yeah. against the machine by not making money. Not, not participating in capitalism. She's a conscientious observer to the capitalist system. Objector. Um, objector, there we go. Uh, when you have surgery, what happens to all the gas inside you? <laughs> Oh, this I is never a legit question. Someone, I know, it's just the visual. He <laughs> was searching, cutting into your stomach, and it's just like all the farts come out at once. Like, pfft, like oh, they, that's where they were. Like, we're big stinky balloons. <laughs> um, this um, is actually, this is a good I question, Tom. I know, it's Tom. real. I'm not making fun of the question, Tom. I just think it's a fun image. If, you, if you've ever had a procedure like a colonoscopy, you know that, like, afterwards, you're gonna, <laughs> there's going to be some gas because, like, where? What do you mean? Inside your colon. Okay. Because we stuck a camera up there. And shoved all the farts into one And then all the, place. well, and extra air got in, so now it has to come back out. Um, and that does happen after a surgery, after, like, all the air is let back out of the abdominal cavity, because, like, it's usually in, inflated, so to mm -hmm. speak, to, because so many surgeries these days are laparoscopic, right? They're, we use a camera. So we sort of inflate the area so we can get the camera around in there better. Um, the air is then removed, but there's extra that is then like resorbed into the colon and yeah. you've got to fart out later or burp out later or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it it comes out your butt. <laughs> so you don't have air bubbles inside you. Don't worry. That is not part of the surgical process. It is part of the aftermath. <laughs> Sometimes when commercials for prescription drugs play, they say to tell your doctor if you or someone in your household has gotten vaccinated recently. I get why they need to do that if you had a vaccine, but what does it matter if someone else did? How would that affect your ability to take the drug? From Confused Cast. Um, I would say that in this case, what they're probably talking about are, one, vaccines that are live virus vaccines, which is not the COVID vaccine. Everybody already knows that probably, but just to throw that out there again, the COVID vaccine is not a live virus vaccine. When you do have a live virus vaccine, there is this um, worry that after you get the live virus vaccine, could you shed some of the virus in your stool, in your body, in your bodily, out, you know, in your in your waste products, is that possible? Um, and because of that, and I'm guessing again that the medications they're talking about are medicines that suppress your immune system, like medicines for um, different autoimmune diseases and stuff like that. And the combination of those two could be concerning. 
Uh, so in those very specific situations with live vaccines and people in the household who are on immunosuppressants who might be around those people, this is the this is the concern that they're having. Um, it's because it's the same reason that somebody who is immunosuppressed may not be a good candidate for a live virus vaccine. Uh, but in all of these situations, they're very specific to the patient, the family, the disease, the drug, mm -hmm. the vaccine, all that. So don't assume any of that based on a vaccine or medication. Please talk to your healthcare provider so that they can guide you in that situation because these would be very rare but specific situations. Uh, okay, two more, Sydney. When you have nasal congestion, why is it that sometimes one nostril will feel completely blocked or be runny or the other nostril is completely clear? And why does it shift sides occasionally, such as when you sleep on one side versus the other? That's from Jonathan. You have turbinates in your nose, these like outpouchings of tissue inside your nose that swell in response to allergens or um, if it's an infection or a cold, you know, like a cold or something or, or an allergen or whatever seasonal stuff. Um, they swell and they alternate. One side swells and then it goes down and then the other side swells. This is why one side of your nose feels stuffy and then it doesn't and then the other side feels stuffy. Um, and it does switch back and forth. It is not a matter of blowing it out. That's why a lot of people think is like, if I could just blow hard enough, then they would both be clear in that moment. And it's not like if you stuck a camera up your nose, you wouldn't see like a big plug of snot and boogers. It's that the, the tissue on the side of your nose is actually swollen. Um, but at least your body's nice enough to alternate it. So yeah, you can breathe out of one side up. or the other. I don't know if that's more or less frustrating, honestly. Yeah. What's the deal with dark under the eyes? Is it a situation like cellulite where skincare and beauty companies just want me to feel insecure so they can sell me products? Or do they actually indicate a lack of sleep or nutrition? Why are they so darn dark in the first place? And that is from Sam. I would say that this is a combination of both. Um, you can, you know, that you can see like darker circles under the eyes because of lack of sleep or fatigue or something like that, right? That is, that is a possible cause. Um, so... You know, I, I'm not going to say that that part is untrue, but then there are lots of other reasons um, that really aren't the, – the, the solution is probably not found in the beauty industry. Um, one of the most common is allergies. They're called allergy shiners, allergic shiners, hmm. and it's dark circles under your eyes as a result of allergies that maybe aren't being managed as well as they could have. So seeking treatment for your allergies might help to alleviate that. There is also a genetic component to this, whether it's your actual, like, skin pigmentation or just genetically you have darker circles, a darker area under your eyes. That's just – that just happens. Mm. Um, and that's not necessarily something you need to, like, address in any way unless it bothers you. Um, there isn't a cure or a fix for that. Uh, it can be because of some sort of contact dermatitis or something like that, obviously, like, inflammation of the skin. Um it can be because you rubbed your eyes too much. The blood vessels around our eyes are very fragile. And if you're constantly rubbing your eyes, you can see a darker area around your eyes or scratching at your eyes, which may, again, be allergies. Um, sun exposure can do this. Another good reason to wear your sunscreen. It also can just change with aging. Lots of reasons, not necessarily that you're tired, although that can play a part too. And um, generally, the causes are not something to be concerned about. There are, some of them can be addressed. Uh, but I do think it is something that has been uh, made a lot of in, in the beauty industry as like it is very undesirable because it indicates that you are somehow dehydrated and tired every time we see dark circles. 
I just think it's like it's like this proof that I'm just like cranking it out twenty four seven, and I don't have time to sleep because I'm fully getting in the marrow of the whole thing. But see, that the, this is the capitalism has made you feel this way. <laughs> Finally, we found a bad thing that capitalism does. That it you are you are glamorizing exhaustion. Not exactly. Just for for me, it's just from partying with my buds. I will say that no matter how much sleep I get, I always have dark circles under my eyes. They're very, and they're very fetching. Are they fetching? We're Do you all, think they're we fetching? All, we all no, I I sympathize. If it's if you have that and it bothers you, I will say I I empathize with you because it bothers me. And no matter how many times I tell myself like you're fine, it's not that big a deal. It's just the media making you feel bad about yourself. If you really I fall like at preparation age. <laughs> Butt cream. It works. Does that really work the for secret you? Secret of the Hollywood elite, like myself. <laughs> there is, and there's also, if I will say, with people if thinking it, that your face smells like butt cream. If you're a little dehydrated, your eyes can look puffier by contrast. Mm. Um, but, like, this is not to say water is the great cure-all. I mean, water's important. Drink water. Get sleep. Sleep is important. These are important things, yeah. not so much for our under-eye circles, just, be you know, for, like, our general functioning as humans. Um, um, hey, that's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, hey, did you know you can buy Sawbone stuff if you go to MacAuryMerch.com? We've got stuff there. Um, we also have a uh, – there's pins and T-shirts. I also have a book. Uh, the the Sawbones book, actually, you can find it wherever fine books are sold. Uh, and we would really appreciate you doing that. Thank you for listening. Be sure to share the show with a friend if you haven't this week. This would be a great time to share Sawbones with somebody. If you've never listened to the episode where we talk about people eating mummies, mm-hmm. oof, that's a good one. That's a good one. Not to toot our own horns, but, well, the history is good. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to join us again next time for Sawbones. Until then, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.